You're listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 123 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. If the member of a superannuation fund still has some super left and dies, then there are three questions to sort out. Who receives the super directly from the fund and who only receives it through the estate? In what form, so as a pension or a lump sum? And how is this taxed? CIS law sets the framework for the first two questions. It determines who is assist dependents and hence can receive a death benefit directly from a super fund and doesn't have to go via the estate. And CIS law also determines who can receive the death benefit as a pension because that's only a very selected few CIS dependents who can receive a pension. But the third question, how much tax beneficiaries pay upon receiving a death benefit, that question is answered by tax law. Tax law determines who is a tax dependent and hence who pays how much tax on what component of the death benefit. To understand this better, I went to see Gordon McKenzie of UNSW. Here's Gordon. Talk about death benefits. Let me ask you a question. There's only one compulsory event in superannuation. There's only one event where the trustee has to pay a benefit. Death. Exactly. Why do you think that is? The legislator wants super out of super. Exactly. If they had it their way, 100%, they would just want a lump sum. One lump sum out of super and end of story. Precisely. The big picture is that they don't want you to use your super fund as estate planning. And you see that in the tax rates, that if the money's coming out of your super on your death go to somebody who they don't, an adult child, then they crank the rates up so that effectively you'll pay 30%. So you pay 15 on contributions, 15 on earnings, and they cop another 15% when they get it. So that brings the rate back up to 30%. So the design of the system is the only compulsory event is death, and that is because they give you tax concessions to fund your retirement. And they would like to force you to take an annuity when you retire, that we can't do that because Australians are antagonistic towards annuities. We will give you tax incentives to take a pension, but when you die, you're out of the system. And if the monies go to somebody uh, that the government does not think is worthy, in other words, a death benefit dependent, then the rates of tax will crank up. And when you add those rates of tax to the 15 on contributions and earnings, you'll have paid 30% on it. So they actually wash out the tax concessions. Hmm. That means that putting money into super can actually be highly detrimental to adult children. If somebody had a million dollars sitting as a term deposit outside of super, then the million dollars would go tax-free to the non-tax dependents because we don't have an inheritance tax in Australia. But then if they put it into super and the next day they died, the adult children would pay 15% at least 15%, if maybe even 30% tax on it, depending on whether it's in the text or untaxed element. The actual amount you contribute is... Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it will come out tax free. But, yeah, I take your point. And, and that leads on to another issue, which is whether you insure in a superannuation fund. And the practitioners that we speak to say, this is a matter of practice, unless you've got a, a death benefit dependent, then don't insure in your superannuation fund. Because the life insurance proceeds go into the untaxed element, which means a non-tax dependent would actually pay 30% tax. Precisely. So it's because of that tax effect that if the trustee at any time has claimed a deduction, any time, no matter how big the deduction for a premium, as you say, the proceeds from the insurance company come into the fund as a 
uh, as an untaxed element in the, in the tax element, which just means the rate of tax on those to a non-death benefit dependent will in fact be a flat 30%. The theory that practitioners tell us is that unless you've got a death benefit dependent, don't insure in your superannuation fund. If you want to insure, then insure outside your super fund. And with a death benefit dependent, you mean a tax dependent? The technical term for a tax dependent is a death benefit dependent. Oh, okay. okay. Didn't know that. Yeah, that's fine. But people say, well, look, um, no, I don't want to insure outside the super fund because I don't get a deduction for the premium. Well, you don't. But the only reason super fund trustees get a deduction for insurance premium is because they've got to cop 15% on the contributions going in. So that premium offsets the 15%. And the reason I know that is because I was on the Life Insurance Council that negotiated that with Treasury in 1988 or whenever it was. So the deductibility per se is not a free kick. It's giving you back the 15% tax on your contributions. Yeah. So you pay 15% on the contribution, then you get the 15% back through the tax deduction of your premiums. But then when then the proceeds leave the super fund and go to a, a death benefit, a non-death benefit dependent, meaning your adult children, then they pay another 30% gain. So in the end, you pay 30% on the life insurance proceeds. And that's exactly right. The reason that 30% is that the Treasury guys see 30% as the standard rate of tax, that if we don't know what your marginal rate is, you cop 30%. Again, the theory is that if you don't have a death benefit dependent, because the money's going to a death benefit dependent, even though they're part of the taxed element and they're an untaxed element in the fund, it doesn't matter because it's completely tax-free. But if that amount goes to somebody who's not a death benefit dependent, then whack, they cop 30%. Hmm. Is life insurance the most common example of an untaxed element outside of government super funds, etc.? Or is it also that, for example, the downsizer contribution, does that also go into the untaxed element? The downsizer contribution is part of an extra non-concessional contribution that you can contribute. So for tax purposes, it's a post-tax amount of money. Yeah, so you don't pay 15% contribution on it? No, we don't claim a tax deduction for it. Okay, so it actually goes into the tax-free component? Yes, Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's treated as non-consensual contribution. Oh, okay. Good. Talking about death benefits, as I said, there's a lot of intrigue, which I find intriguing, maybe with four years' experience in drafting a lot of annuity contracts and superannuation days. A reversionary pension is called a reversionary pension, but what it means is the trustee will say that when member A, who is being paid a pension, dies, that pension will stop, and that member B will get a pension. So that is the way that a trustee expresses a reversionary pension. Economically, you say, well, the pension reverts. Well, no, it doesn't. It actually stops for the deceased and then commences for the survivor. And the survivor only gets the pension on the death of the deceased. So that's a reversionary pension. I think that's all that difficult. I, I always thought of a reversionary pension as a name tag on it. And when that person dies, we just put a different name tag on it. We just put the spouses or whoever is the reversionary beneficiary We put their name tag on it and the pension just continues. Technically, if you have a look at the Tax Act, it says that a pension will be a death benefit pension if it's paid on the death of someone else. So if member A is being paid a pension, they die, their pension ceases. And then a, the trustee will commence to pay a pension to member B and that will be a death benefit pension because it satisfies the definition of a pension paid on the death of someone else. Because the tax rules differentiate between benefits paid during a lifetime and benefits paid during death because you get different tax rates on death. As we discussed, the theory is when you're dead, you're out of the system and unless the monies go to people that 
don't get tax concessions, the rates of tax on those death benefits are going to be increased so that the government reclaims some of the tax concessions they've given the deceased. I've read a number of comments that a reversionary pension is not a death benefit but it is a member benefit. Is that right? There is a subtlety to that. But if you read the rules, a pension paid on the death of a member is a death benefit pension. Whether it's reversionary or not. Well, when you say reversionary, that's, as I said, draft super fund trustees, and that is a reversion Because under the old-style defined benefit funds... The way they used to work was that the member would be paid a benefit depending on how long they were a member of the fund, their salary when they retired, and usually they would get a pension. And then when they died, their survivor, spouse, would get two-thirds of what they got. That was a classic superannuation pension. And as I said, we don't have defined benefit pensions. There's some legacy pensions, but the majority of pensions now are accumulation pensions. So, again, a reversionary pension is nothing more than a pension paid to a person on the death of someone else. Okay. The pension the trustee is paying to the member simply stops and then the trustees pay a pension to the survivor because they only become entitled to a pension on the death of a member. Mm. But they are called reversionary pensions. What's the difference between a reversionary pension and a death benefit pension that is paid to the spouse? So let's say we have a reversionary pension to the spouse and we have a death benefit pension to the spouse, whether we do one or the other, what's the difference? They're the same. Uh, the trustee will say, the trustee will pay member A, who was the initial member of the fund, a pension until they die. And when they die, the trustee stops. And the trustee will say, on the death of member A, the trustee will pay a pension to member B, their survivor. So it's, it's called a reversionary pension, but it's simply a new pension paid by the fund to the survivor. So the main core of the reversionary pension is basically that it overrides any binding death benefit nomination, meaning it is 100% certain that the um, spouse or whoever is the reversionary beneficiary, it's 100% sure that this person will receive the pension and it's kind of safe from other binding death benefit nominations because the reversionary pension overrides that. So that's basically the main purpose of making a pension reversionary. Legally, you're right. If the trustee says that on the death of member A, member B gets a pension, then regardless of the fact that member A has given, why they would do that, I don't know. You're right. If the deed says that the surviving spouse will get paid a pension, the surviving spouse gets paid a pension. Mm. But so a reversionary pension must always be in the deed, must be set up in the deed. You can't set up a reversionary pension later through a separate document. Yeah, it's, uh, a, it's, a, action. it's an obligation on the trustee. Because uh, the alternative to do that is that the survivor is uh, entitled to a benefit and then they commence a pension on their own account. But that won't be a death benefit pension. Because as I said, the definition of a death benefit pension is a pension that's paid on the death of somebody else. Because again, the tax rules differentiate between benefits paid on death and benefits paid not on death, so on retirement, disablement, financial distress or whatever. The tax rules have a strong dichotomy between benefits paid on death and between benefits paid on other events. And as I said, The design of the system is that the government is giving you, the individual, tax concessions to fund you, the individual's retirement. Okay, they'll let you fund uh, children under 25 if they're still at school. Financially dependent. And uh, they'll let you fund your spouse, as defined, or somebody who's financially dependent. Anybody outside that class of beneficiary, the tax rates are cramped up. 
so that effectively the tax concessions that they've given you to accumulate that amount are actually reclaimed. So that's what you see with, with what's going on here. You get a tax concession while you are alive and you're in retirement, but whatever is left over that you didn't need, you basically have to pay the concessions back. But it's not that's, you, it's your beneficiaries, your surviving beneficiaries. Yeah, that's the design of the system. And again, the whole point of it is that the government doesn't want you to use your retirement assets for estate planning. Now, I'm a tax lawyer, so what the government wants, I'm not necessarily going to do agree with. So there's a lot of planning around. But that's the thinking behind it. Um, as I said before, the only compulsory event, the only event a trustee has to pay, is obligated to pay, is on death. If you're disabled, they don't have to pay your benefit. If you retire, you don't have to take a benefit. It's not compulsory to be paid, but the only event which you have to be paid. The other aspect of that is that if paid as a lump sum, then it can be paid in instalments, but it's got to be paid as soon as possible. Uh, but you can continue to be paid a pension on death, a death benefit pension. Putting reversionary pensions aside, yes. at death, the trustee can either pay out a lump sum, and that means it's a transfer out of the super environment, or they can pay a death benefit pension. And that basically means I move the assets from the deceased's account that might be within the same super fund, but it might also be in a different super fund. Yeah, which is good, actually, because uh, that changing super funds on death had been a problem. If you get paid a death benefit, then it can only be paid as an income stream. If you go back into accumulation phase, it's got to be paid out. There were problems if the survivor wanted to move out of the fund that was paying them the death benefit pension, because what they used to do uh, prior to 1st of July 2017 was that they would actually default the death benefit provisions. So if you have a look at the, the rules for a death benefit, um, it's uh, a, a benefit paid within a certain period after death or after um, the um, estate's got probate. Now, if you waited longer than those two, then the, for tax purposes, the accumulation did not become a death benefit and you could accumulate it and then what you would do is move it to another fund and start a pension. Now, the problem with that is that the pension that you started in the new fund would not be a death benefit pension. Thank God they've changed the rules. And why does that matter, whether something is a death benefit pension or not? If you're over age 60, it doesn't matter. But if you're under age 60, then, and depending if the assuming the deceased was over age 60, then the pension is tax-free to somebody under age 60. If you're over age 60, you're indifferent because uh, uh, the, uh, the the benefit will not, the pension will not be accessible. But you just said they changed the rules. They've changed the rules so that now if you're in receipt of a death benefit pension, you can actually transfer it to a new fund and it will continue to be treated as a death benefit pension. It's only relevant to people under age 60 because if you're over age 60, then the new pension would be uh, it would be um, if you if you go into accumulation mode and then buy a new pension then it will be tax free anyway. Yes. So on a very practical basis, let's say the deceased had one million in super. Yes. For a lump sum, that one million is transferred out to a different bank account that is not in the super environment. For a death benefit pension, that one million is either transferred to another super account within the super fund or within the SMSF, or it is transferred to a bank account of a different super fund. But then, of course, it needs to immediately start on the same day of receipt. A death benefit pension must start immediately because the death benefit can't stay in accumulation. Uh, when you say immediately, I mean, it can be paid annually. Is that what you meant? The definition of pension is 
depend, depending on your age, it's a percentage of the 1st of July account balance in your fund. Uh, now, the, the tax rulings on pensions are a bit esoteric, but they say, well, a pension is a payment which is related to a payment in a future period. Uh, but th there's, besides the percentage of your 1 July account balance, there's no restrictions on how the period of CD of the payment, you can pay it annually. So you could actually defer it for a year. You're not talking about the minimum pension payments? Yes. Oh, I see. Okay. When the one million now arrives in your super account, you can't leave it sitting in accumulation. You must start a pension on that day. When you then make the minimum pension payments, yes, they can happen at any stage during the year. Understood. But you must start a pension on the day you receive the funds. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. yeah. Because the, the the way the tax ruling says is that a pension starts on the first day of the period in respect of which the payment is made. So if you have a pension that's paid annually, then the tax ruling will say, well, that pension commenced on the first day of the year, not when the actual amount's paid. This might be of interest to you, but the, and this is probably a bit esoteric, but that minimum pension amount is the closest we come to getting people to use their funds for an annuity. And if you have a look at it, I think it starts off at 4% below 65. Yeah, and then it gets faster and faster. So it caps out at about 17% or 14%, I think, around mm. Now, those numbers assume an earning rate of 5%. And the theory is that if you pay out at that rate, assuming the fund earns 5%, then if you survive to 100, you're going to have a zero account balance. That's the aim with the minimum pension payments, to basically have zero account balance on the day you die. That's what the government would go to the bed with a smile on its face if you did that, which is the rules we discussed before. They don't want you to have any monies in your super fund. You get the tax concessions, you use it for your retirement, and then on the day you die, zero account. Okay, but We'll get let you pass someone to some other... But that's the theory. And you're right, the minimum account balance is precisely that. It's designed to exhaust your account. As I said, it's the closest the government comes to getting Australians to buy a pension. They could have said, well, like they do in a lot of other countries, okay, you can take 20% or 25% of your accumulation if you want to pay off your mortgage. The other, the balance of your account has to be used to pay a pension. Now, go to a life company, buy it. It's going to be a life-dependent pension so that when you die... There'll be zero account amount of fund. We don't do that. What we do is say, look, if you want to get the tax concessions of a pension, then you've got to pay the minimum amount. And as you say, that minimum amount is theoretically designed to draw down the full amount. Yeah. You knew that, did you? That's good. No, it's fine. So I just thought that's one of those esoteric things. Can you make a reversionary pension to somebody who is not a member of your super fund? Or is a reversionary pension designed or meant to only go to somebody who is a member of the same super fund? person that gets a pension will be a, then a member. By reason of getting a pension, they will be a member of the superannuation fund. Oh, really? Yeah. So let's say we have one million in the bank account and this one million needs to go somewhere. We don't have a reversionary pension at the moment. We just have a death benefit pension. I can pay that one million to a completely different super fund and then they start a pension in that super fund. That's fine, yeah. Okay. But the, the person who gets the pension in the second fund will be a member of that second fund. A member of the, the second, second fund, fund. Yeah. but not the first fund. fund yeah. Of course, okay. yes. And now a reversionary pension can only go to a member of the first fund. It can't go to somebody else outside of the first fund, correct? Right, yeah. Okay. Because yeah. the way that reversionary pensions work is the trustee will say 
that on the death of member A, they cease to get the pension, but because of their death, member B gets a pension. So it can't be a third party B, it must be member B. It must B. be a member, yeah. A tryst stops the moment the person dies. A reversionary tryst, does it turn into a, an actual pension when it's reverting or does it continue being a tryst for member B? The straight answer to your question is it becomes a death benefit dependent, a death benefit pension because it's paid on the death of the member. Uh, trysts are interesting things and I wasn't surprised when they brought back on them. The Treasury guys don't agree with me on this terminology, but there's a thing called a cliff effect. And that is that it used to be that if you wanted to get hold of your super fund, you had to leave the workforce. So you had a choice. Okay? It was like a cliff. You either continued working, didn't get hold of your super, or you left the workforce and got hold of your super. And the thinking was in 2005 that what we'll do is we'll let people reduce their work hours and reduce their remuneration, and they can replace that reduced remuneration with money coming out of their super fund. Downside was there was no connection between reduced remuneration and accessing your super fund. All you had to do was achieve the preservation age. And my brother, who's a brain surgeon, accountant, went through our superannuation course. He reached his preservation age and his accountant said, why don't you start a TRIS? And he said, they're just tax avoidance vehicles. And I said to him, well, they are, but why don't you do it? So the brain surgeons actually have ethics. The point of that was that they, they were just a tax play, okay? More so if you're over age 60, because you could take a minimum pension and there was a maximum of 10% of your account balance, which they introduced. Initially, there was no maximum, but you could take the minimum at age 60 was 4% and then maximum of 10%. Because you're over age 60, there was no tax on the pension and because the fund was paying a pension, this was before the transfer balance caps, Regardless of the amount in your fund, it was all tax-free. There are intriguing things. One of the problems with the new rules that has been problematic is that was, well, look, what happens if you're getting paid a TRIS and you turn 65? Because when you turn 65, then it's a condition of release. Does the pension then become... Uh, An AVP. And I think they've got that sorted out. Yeah, have they? So can, can a trust automatically turn now into an ABP? Sorry, yeah. I think you've got to tell the trustee, look, I've reached my preservation age. Could you please, you don't have to worry about the maximum now. You've got to worry about this is the minimum. There was a time, I think, when the ATO insisted that you can't change the nature of a trust, that you first have to stop the trust and then start an ABP. Yes. Yeah, and I think the issue was that if you have to stop it and then start again, the crystallized tax-free component might get diluted when you have to stop and it goes back into accumulation and then you start it again. And I think that was an issue. Yeah, which is exactly right. The way the tax rules work is that they calculate the proportion of tax and tax-free at commencement of a pension and that will continue on unless you commute it, which is right. So if you commute it, there were tax problems on commutation. Yeah. Okay, but so the good news is you can transfer it. The only compulsory event when a super fund's got to pay is on death, and the reason for that is they do not want you to use your super fund for estate planning. They will let you pass your accumulation onto certain groups of individuals, the death benefits dependent, and they get special rates. Outside of that, the tax rates are different. So if your fund pays on death to somebody who is not a death benefit dependent, then they will pay another 15%. And I say another 15%, because that's in addition to the 15% on contributions and also on income. 
the part of the lump sum, which is the uh, uh, untaxed element, that, of course, will go to them completely tax-free, and that was... You mean the tax-free component? Sorry, the tax-free component of the lump sum. Tax-free component of the lump sum will go to a non-death benefit dependent tax-free, and that was one of the strategies. The tax-free component goes tax-free to anybody. Nobody pays tax on a tax-free component. Yes, that's right. The tax-free component hasn't got any of the tax concessions in superannuation. When you have a look at the formula for calculating what's taxable and tax-free, it's a residual number. The starting point is you have a look at the value of the, it's called the superannuation interest, so the member's account, take off the part of the account which is tax-free, so uh, non-concessional contributions, and then the balance of the fund is then taxable. The proportion of taxable tax-free, it's an anti-avoidance rule. It's designed to stop you going to your trustee and say, look, pay me a benefit, but pay it out of the tax-free amount. You used to be able to do that, but since 2007, they said, no, no, what we'll do is any benefit is going to be taxable to tax-free in the same ratio as the account is paid from is taxable to tax-free. What that meant was that some people were setting up completely tax-free accounts. So if they're over age 60, they would take a benefit, not pay any tax on it, then they would recontribute it to another account and they would go in as a concessional contribution. I don't know how esoteric this is, but there's only about three tax rules which are different from self-managed super funds to other super funds. One of them is that for tax purposes, a self-managed super fund cannot have multiple accumulation accounts for a member. No matter how many accumulation accounts you've got in a self-managed super fund for the member, they're aggregated for tax purposes. And the reason is to stop you building up a tax-free account. You can go to an industry fund or a retail fund. You can have as many accumulation accounts as you want, and each of those accounts will be taxed discreetly. So this one's only tax-free. You can't do that in a self-managed super fund. rate of tax on the benefit depends on who it goes to and whether it's actually got tax concessions in the system. And so the taxable component of a benefit going to a non-death benefit dependent will in fact suffer tax at another 15%. And when you add that 15% tax that they pay with 15% on contributions and earnings, it means that the aggregate rate of tax on that will be 30%. You get variations with life insurance proceeds. If the trustee is claim the deduction, then they come into the member's account as untaxed element in the fund. When they're paid out to a non-death benefit dependent, whack, 30%. Okay. i make this one observation, which has been shared with us by the practitioners that have gone through our SMSF specialisation. They say that a lot of people won't plan around death benefits, the 15%. Their view is that if their survivors cop 15% tax, they should be grateful for whatever they get. I mean, it's a pretty pragmatic view. So they say, well, look, I'm not going to do a recontribution strategy to build up a tax-free account. Whatever my survivors get will be less than 15%, but they should be grateful for what they've got. I'm not so sure about that, but, but anyway, yeah. Welcome back. We touched on ex-spouses, and ex-spouses are not cis-dependents, but they are tax-dependents. So an ex-spouse can only receive super via the estate, and not directly from the fund. But if they do receive super via the estate, then it would be tax-free as a tax-dependent. In the next episode, episode 124, Gordon McKenzie will talk more about this distinction between cis 
and tax dependence. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.